0: Well, uh, uh, first of all, I've got a couple of things that I need to do. Uh, by the way, I know some of these speakers that spoke before me, they kind of jerk every once in a while. And the problem is, it's an honest program. Now, you see people coming in like that. And there, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, there's a mirror back on there. And you see them coming in the door first, and then you've got to see if it's the real same people, you know. (laughs) And uh, it kind of gets confusing now, (laughs) particularly when the same people don't come through. Uh, I I want to thank the committee and the people involved in getting me up here, and you know who you are. uh, uh, you got a good deal here. And I've been to a lot of them. But this is one of the best I've been to. I want you to know that. I was, uh, down at, uh, uh
1: at,
0: at Delmar years ago, and I must have made a hell of an impression. You just got me back up here, and, uh, and it, it's good to be here and be with you. And, and I want to thank the committee for letting Julie, now, Julie, stand up. This is my wife, Julie. Uh, uh, It's good to be here, and uh, and by the way, I want to thank the committee for letting me get up here this morning without all this stuff you go through. Uh, uh, It's always appropriate when you're a Sunday morning speaker. You know, I've heard years ago the purpose of Sunday morning speaker to clean up the mess,
1: and uh, (laughs) it it ain't no mess here, I'll tell you. uh, I I know most
0: of them, and and I thank God for all of them, and they did a wonderful job. uh, But they tell me years ago, back in my home state, they had a convention, and a and, and fellow was kind of long-minded. He got up on Sunday morning and started talking. The first hour, he talked about 12 steps. The second hour, he got into 12 traditions. The third hour, he got into three legacies. He said, People begin to leave. He said, We'll leave. I found it out one night. I know. Sure enough, uh, everybody left but one man sitting on the front row. And the man got concerned. He was speaking. He ran down from the podium when he got through and grabbed the man by the hand and said, I want to ask you one question. Everybody left but you. Why'd you stay? He said, Hell, I'm the next speaker. Well, <laughs> you kind of know how I feel, don't you? Uh, and the other thing I want to say is this uh, Bud and Dee. I had no idea they'd be here this weekend. Now, Bud is one of the few living members in Alcoholics and I must saw me when I was starved, raving, and sober. And because I came in, AA, in Roanoke, Virginia, back in '57. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Dave Cook. Hi, everybody. Hi. By God's grace, and because this program worked for me, and through the help of some understanding sponsors, who have led me with a kind but firm hand through the love of, well, of a loving wife I had for many years, who passed away not long ago, and then my present wife, Julie, who's our love, and through many people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink any a since September 12, nineteen fifty-seven, And for this I'm very grateful. <laughs> now, I don't give you a surprise to date. I'm not surprise date. date. Sometimes impressions the hell out of me, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I, I give it for, you know, time we give surprise to dates, uh, I think of an old, I call them circuit riders, the, the, the old timers that came before me. And one of them was a man from East Texas named Bert Crawford, and you know, out in Texas, if you don't give you a surprise today, hell, they'll shoot you. And, uh, and, and Burton would uh, get up and talk, and he said, my name's Burton Crawford, and I've been sober ever since I can remember. Well, when you think about it, that applies to all of <laughs> us. Uh, the real reason is, uh, my second meeting, alcoholics, Anonymous, one of these discussion meetings. And... Uh, they had 13 or 14 wicker chairs sitting in a circle. And I was no different from anybody else <clears> that goes to our first discussion meeting. I began to wonder what I was going to say when it got to me. And the man who had become my first sponsor spoke up and told me what to say. He said, give your name and your sobriety date. That's all you're qualified to do. And as a matter of fact, uh, he explained to me after the meeting, that's all I was going to be able to do for quite a while, give my name and sobriety date. And they have a saying in that group that if you well, remember that group and got behind the podium, if you didn't give your sobriety date, you usually didn't have one. So that's the reason I give my sobriety date. I, uh, I've received a lot of benefits from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been over two-thirds of my life in AA. Came to AA when I was 29. Well, I didn't exactly come. I didn't come in here and join up, you know, like... Never seen anybody run in and say, I want to join up, you know what I mean, uh, uh, it will not that way for me either, but uh, Alcoholics Anonymous really found me, and my getting to Alcoholics Anonymous was unusual in, uh, in respect. I thank God for the fact I was young when I got here. I didn't drink for 13 years, In the 13 years that I drank, I went from you-know-what to you-know-what, and uh, I started my drinking when I was 16. I should have known what to do to a grown man or anybody in the teens because of my father. I didn't know my father had a drinking problem. Well, I knew he had a drinking problem, but I didn't know he was an alcoholic until I got sober. When well, I began to know something about alcoholism, I didn't know anything about alcoholism until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and had a little sobriety. My father was one of these men that, uh, you've heard the expression, he's a good man as long as he doesn't drink. And he led to a divorce in my home when I was 12 years of age. My mother was able to clothe me, feed me, send me off and get a good education. Well, off school, and that's where I came in contact with... There's somebody talking about John Bollycorn for the first time, 16 years of age, a freshman in college. A just come back to World War II, that's a lot over, and I was in that environment, and I've always said, no matter what environment you're in, sobriety or before Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever ever what that environment is, if you stay it long enough, you'll become a part of it. And I became a part of that environment, and I began to drink. I worked at it in the beginning, you know, we gag, we throw up and all that stuff, and I used to hear the older fellows talk about the pleasure that comes from drinking. Didn't understand what he was talking about. I was gagging most of the time. And, and one night, one of them explained to me, he said, Dave, if you remember, I there's a little pause in between from the time you take the drink and when you throw up. That's the pleasure. Well, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I went on through college and... Uh, and have, I didn't know what a hangover was. Uh, I drank uh, on weekends and got you know just living it up and having a good time. And but I started doing strange things, getting in strange trouble. I studied engineering in college, but because of my basketball, ability and playing college basketball. I was off the job coaching high school basketball when I finished school. And I don't know, uh, a little glory seeking, I guess. Uh, I uh, was employed uh, down in northeastern North Carolina, a small school, and went out in my profession to become somebody, and I fell upstairs in the coach profession for a short period of time. But I was drinking on weekends and having a good time. And, and all this is hindsight now. I can remember when uh, we used to — you know, my drinking at that time, it was just on weekends when I met some of my schoolmates somewhere to have a party. Well, <clears throat> they became knocked down and dragged out of house I was over, oh, you know, show up maybe Monday, sometime Monday. And I began to have some problems with my job because of my drinking, although I didn't know it. It wasn't long before I, I, because of an offer of a much larger school, I moved up in the profession to a much larger school, down east, in my home state, you keep moving east, and by God, it ain't nowhere to go, and that's what finally happened to me, I just kept moving east, and and, uh, this was a big school, and, and I had a lot of success there for a period of time until the drinking got in the way. I can remember the first time I was calling the principal's office to talk to me about my drinking and I resented it very much. I denied it and resented it. I'd gotten to the, Well I was doing some things that you don't normally do. I would show up on sometimes on Tuesday to go to work.
1: <laughs> and uh,
0: and I missed ball games once in a while. I was supposed to be coaching. Things like that. And then I got in trouble with a girls' basketball team. Uh, <laughs> Well, <clears throat> what happened was simply this. Uh, I've been coaching the men for, ever since I'd been out of college, and in the middle of the year, the girls' coach had to go into service and asked me to take over the girls' oh, ball. Now, I was going to these ball games, had, you know, real loose. Uh, drinking vodka, she leaves me breakfast, you know. And, and now, I wasn't drunk. I wasn't obnoxious. Just, 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 just loose, you know. and uh, And... The opening tip-off the girls, I had had them in the huddle, and I'd been in the habit of hitting the boys on the (laughs) the reel, and so
1: (laughs) you know what happened.
0: And and as I began to do that, first of all, I held some parents, came down out of the stands. I didn't know what I'd done, I'll be honest, and didn't know what the problem was. (laughs) Needless to say, the school board met the next morning, and... (laughs) And that was the beginning of my doubt. Well, I tried getting people off and back by getting married at that time. I knew a girl in the neighborhood. I quoted for about two weeks. And, <laughs> you know, to grab their attention. And, you know, in the book it says, Alcohol is cunning, back from poverty. The alcoholic is cunning and baffling. And that's the way I was at that time. And uh, we uh, lived together for about a year and a half and knew after a few months that it was a mistake but here's the irony, the, alcohol, the alcoholic affects the family, as we see in Eleanor. Uh, because of the fact that a divorce would be a lot of embarrassment in the community we're in, I just wouldn't get a, we just wouldn't get a divorce, we'd live together. And yet, by this time, I'm the community drunk. And everybody there knows it except she and I. And this is alcoholism. This is alcoholism. And I look back now, and, and I really believe in I'm the firm believer that uh, I never knew that, I, I never thought or had any idea that I had a problem with booze. Well, there were times when I used to look at it and take a little glance and look when I was down and I, I had to bargain with somebody to get something. And uh, I would uh, say, maybe it's the wine, maybe it's the beer, maybe it's the people. But invariably, invariably, as I began to get my health back, after all, I was drunk, I'd become that same liar that I'd been before. And the things that would come back. I didn't know what the truth was. I could honestly deceive myself, and that sickness as it worsened. I, uh, I don't even understand it today. In fact, of the people I work with, my sobriety, and the people that come into alcoholic's mouths in the future, and that's the inability of the alcoholic to see himself in his worst moments. And that's the thing that just about destroyed me and a lot of you. We could not see ourselves as we really were not face reality.
1: Well, what happened, I finally was
0: given the option to resign from his school, and, because, and the, the wife had left, and uh, I was later employed at another school a little bit further east, and there was a the rock bottom of schools. I lasted six and a half months. Prior to that, my mother, my mother uh, let me tell you about my mother. I had a mother that loved me to death. And prior to uh, this time, I had been to. When I came along, there was no such thing as treatment centers. There were what they called drying out places where they dried you out, so they said. And I went to some of them, uh, three or four of them up and down the East Coast. Uh, I enjoyed going because they'd taper you off. I don't know if any of you ever tapered off or not. I enjoyed tapering off.
1: <laughs> you sipped
0: and you sipped and you sipped. I, I was used in worse shape going home than when I got there, and, uh, and I enjoyed going to these places, and my mother couldn't understand it, spending all that big money, and I'd come back, and, uh, but I had had a sabbatical leave to go to these places when I was teaching, but uh, this particular time I got this last school, and I'd been there six and a half months, the only way I can describe my drinking at that time, I had to get up four or five o'clock in the morning, drink enough booze, and I had it then, to stop shaking, so I could get my, you know, take a shower, shave, and get my clothes on to go to school. 12 miles down the road. And invariably, I knew what was going to happen at 12. The shakes would start again. I'd have some hit in the gymnasium in an automobile, drink enough, you know, a few shots, stop shakes, pray for 3 o'clock, get an automobile, go back to town, go to the beer joints, liquor store, and do the same thing over and over. Six and a half months off. And one day, the principal just stopped me in the hall and said, we don't need you anymore. Hell, we didn't even have a conference. We didn't discuss it we didn't even talk about it he said we don't need you anymore give us the keys and I look back many times and I really believe that uh, I'm convinced that I had crossed that invisible line that we speak of at this time this is hindsight now I had crossed that invisible line that we speak of I'd become an alcoholic although I didn't know it because I would take one drink and I could no longer guarantee you my behavior and to me that's what an alcoholic is Two and a half weeks later, I woke up in jail for the first time in my life, in the city where I was living. A man talked to me through a cell door. I later found out he was a county health doctor. And this man said, Son, says your mother has come down here and straightened out all this mess. Now, my mother had been straightening out in messes for years. I mean, big money. And she's come down here and straightened all this mess out, and we're going to send you a place where they can cure you. <clears throat> well, I began to think I was going to one of those drying out places to taper off. And uh, that's not where I went. Well. The uh, state insane asylum in my home state is called Dick's Hill. I've often said I too found my thrill on Dick's Hill. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: that's where I went for the cure. I uh,
0: was about 27 and a half years of age, close to 28. And, uh, and I'll never want to forget my first trip to Dick's Hill as long as I live. The first few days they put me in what they call the inebriate ward. Didn't know what it meant then. It sounded pretty good. And uh, I adjusted that environment. Uh, those people did rather strange things. They chased squirrels most of the time. (laughs) You know, they'd run under the bed, up the walls, and under the chairs. And and so, hell, I started chasing squirrels too. Hell. (laughs) In Rome, you do as the Romans do. And so, uh, I uh, never caught one, came close a couple of times. uh, and I'd been there in that ward for about a week and they moved me out and because of what happened I started going and doing strange things I'd never experienced before that to my knowledge, which was I now know as D.T., hallucinations and and they carried me down in this building and put me on a padded cell. And they took my clothes away from me. And they let me have my running fits. For a few odd days until I stopped having the running fits and then they carried me back upstairs into a ward and and this was the Treatment of Alcoholism in the state of North Carolina in 1955. I never want to forget it. I never want to forget it. Now, uh, I got up there stairs with the rest of the rummies, and, uh, and, you know, I was beginning to wonder what in the hell I was doing there. Nobody was there my age. The men were a lot older in the 50s, 60s. Nobody my age. And, you know, I was there to expose it to the public, I thought. You know, write a book.
1: <laughs> it's a
0: shame that we didn't have all those tabloids like we have today. I, I probably made a fortune back then. <laughs>
1: uh, I was there to write a book, I thought. And then one
0: night, uh, a bunch of these fellows were playing poker, and they were using matchsticks for chips. And I was listening to them, and they were talking as they were playing cards, and one of them said, I'm here because my wife wanted to put me away, wanted to get rid of
1: me.
0: And I kind of identified with that. I thought I was there because my mother wanted to get rid of me. And my mother had done everything she knew to do for me. Then I I heard a man speak up, and I can see his face just like it was 40 some years ago this morning. He said, I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. And I heard it for the first time in my life, knew what it was, and and the only thing I could think about was my father, my father, being an alcoholic. And I began to play a game that was to plague me until I got the alcoholics and I was, compared my drinking with my father's drinking. And the truth is known, he proved to be a much better man than I ever hoped to be in his drunkenness. My father later died from drunkenness in the automobile actions when he was drunk. And... Uh, I'm one of those amends that I've never made directly to him, I never had the chance to make. I wish my father could have found Alcoholics Thomas. He had made a hell of a good memory. But he didn't. Well, uh, the day came uh, that I had to leave out uh, Now, you've got to understand something. Everything i accumulated since I finished college, i would lost. The homes, the jobs, the... The automobiles, the bank I'd lost everything that I'd accumulated. And what do you do? You go back home. That's the only place to go. went back to my hometown. My mother took me in again, as she always would, and unbeknownst to my family doctor, who was always worried about my nerves, uh, I don't know a thing about drugs, but I do know something about tablets. And and the good doctor gave me some tablets to take, and I went over there for a checkup, now, you're talking about being loose. I was loose. And I, I was running around a crowd I'd been in school with at night, and uh, they were drinking, and I was taking my medicine. And hell, I was in usually worse shape than they were. And, uh,
1: but one night, uh, I, I, uh,
0: I, uh, as we know it today, the compulsion set in. I took one drink, and then I had to have another. One. And in two days, I was back in the place that never, I said I'd never go again as long as I lived, Dick's Hill. I was back in Dixiel again in two days, and to make a long story short, I went back to Dixiel five times in six months. On a count of one back, I had become an alcoholic, although I didn't know it. The last time I went back to Dixiel, I, they put me in the nut part of the bug house instead of the drying out part, and there's a distinct difference. And this is where I found out was being strapped down in the bed with a straitjacket, I found out how you live better record this time too, I never want to forget it. We hear a word, you hear a lot of alcoholics anonymous. It's in everybody's vocabulary, but we hear it a lot in the eighth, coincidence. A lot of coincidences happened prior to me getting alcoholics anonymous. And so a lot of coincidences have happened since I've been sober. But one of the coincidences happened that day. For some reason or another, I'd been in that ward over there with the nuts. I'd come to the point that I accepted my fate. I'd be one of them. But something happened, and one day they put me back over in the old building with the rest of the drunks. Now you got to understand something. I'd been there so much it more or less made me an honorary attendant. I uh, worked in the kitchen, went to get mail and such stuff as that. And one day, uh, two other fellows, now going to get the mail with the main building, and decided we'd, we'd leave. Well, don't want to sound dramatic, but we escaped. Uh, well, back then it was like cops and robbers. And we ran like hell and crawled that fence, and we got out of that afternoon and got into the old Andrew Johnson Hotel in downtown Raleigh, and we got a bottle and was sitting there drinking that afternoon, and the six o'clock news came on the TV, and got to come up with an announcement, three criminals insane had just escaped from Dick's Hill. <laughs> and we were, we were sitting there, you know, and one of them said, wonder who the hell it is. <laughs> well, it on, along before we found out who it was, they flashed those... We steal photos, and, uh, and God, uh, I started laughing a little, and uh, one started crying, and, and the other one just got up and ran like hell, and, uh, and we ain't seen him since. So I don't know what happened. And the other fellow and myself decided, well, hell, we're gangsters now. We better split up, and, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: and so that's what we did. Uh, we got out of there, and uh, the next morning I was on the streets in Raleigh, and a friend of the family and knew me and knew my mother knew my background, knew what was going on. He put me on a bus and sent me back to my hometown, down northeastern North Carolina, where I was raised, in a place called Ronald Rapids. And I had, I broke into my mother's home. Unbeknownst to me, uh, she was in Richmond with a nervous breakdown. A nervous breakdown. And, uh, you know, I'd got in my room. You know how possessive we are, the older we get. In my room. And they, they come home and brought Mother home and found me upstairs in that room and and that afternoon they got together. Now, I don't know if you know who they are or not, but let me tell you about and They are uh, the members of the family who get in one room, crack the door, and put you in another one. And they begin to talk about how much they love you, but what they've got to do. And they, at that time, were my two sisters and uh, a friend of the family and my mother, a friend of the family that like a father to me. And one of them came in the room, uh, this was about, I'd been there about two days, and one of them said, we want you to leave this part of the country, you're killing mother. You're killing mother. And they gave me a wad of money, and it really meant for me to leave, and I knew it. And you know, there's nothing that a practicing alcoholic the anybody to get a little green on his hip.
1: <laughs> I began to think it was a good
0: idea, too, that I'd leave, <laughs> when I saw that money, you know. And, and so I, I, we all said goodbye, and I bid them adieu. And I was enough to go to the West Coast and live comfortably for a while. Um, I went four miles to a neighboring town, <laughs> oh, Wellman Hotel, which was uh, that's where the Coastline Seaboard Railroad used to meet Changes change trains and all that stuff. And it was it was a nice hotel in its day. But I got there kind of late, <laughs> and um, had a lot of friends a few days or for uh, well, about a month or so until the money ran out, and, and nobody knew where I was. They thought I'd gone. And then one day, the money had, I had gone through do it all, and, you know, I'd done the same thing I'd always did. it I never wrote a check that it was bad, that I wasn't going to make good the next morning. You know what I mean. And so I went over to town, a friend of the family who's in business, and I bought an outboard motor. But I didn't have a boat, but I bought a motor. And,
1: you know, write a big check,
0: pick up the change, and i pick up the motor later. And sure enough, uh, they call my mother a couple of days later to tell her that my motor was ready, and... She kind of put two, two and two together, and, uh, and that afternoon John Law was there to take me back to my hometown put me in jail. Three blocks from my mother's home, and, uh, and uh, you know, for a period of about ten days, every night all the drunkards were brought in were gone the next morning except me, and I couldn't understand. It. So one day I finally got the jailer down there, and I told him I wanted to talk to my attorney. He says, Who is your attorney? And I told him. He said, Talk to him all you want to. is an Excel block, and she'll sure help you with <laughs> and, uh, and God does work in mysterious ways. This man later became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and was a member of the state legislature in North Carolina. But uh, he sure as hell couldn't help me that night, i tell you that. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: a few days later, I had to stand trial for something I didn't know in a blackout in my hometown. The prosecuting attorney was my mother's next-door neighbor, and he didn't seem to know who I was. <laughs> As a matter of fact, nobody in that courtroom seemed to know who I was, and, uh, and the end result was uh, I had to go back downstairs to get in one of those cage trucks and go down the road a little bit further the next day and beat trial again for something I didn't know I'd done on a previous drunk. And, uh, a few days later, I went really down east, to the Great Dismal Swamps. I was put on a chain gang for something I didn't know I'd done on a previous drunk. I've always been ashamed of it; still ashamed of it. But I'm one of these people that believe that it took this for me to get the alcoholic's Anonymous, which I think it did for me. I was one of these people that had to be beat down to my knees before I could see myself, and uh, I. Uh, wound up at this place and I did the best I could for a few months and, and uh, I had heard of alcoholics Anonymous one time before that was in Dix Hill on Sunday afternoons, some fellows from Raleigh used to come over there and put on a meeting they'd say everybody in the room or in the conference room AA is here and I'd go in there and get in the back room raise hell make fun of the guy up there speaking I drank a coffee and ate the donut <laughs> and uh, just, just trying to break up the meeting. You know, I was about five years sober when I figured out one day, every Sunday afternoon, those fellows left, but I had to stay. <laughs> you know, we're kind of slow at times, you know.
1: Uh.
0: I got my smoke in the back and my soda pop by writing letters for these fellows. I was the only fellow there with a college education, and, uh, and they called me the paper hanger, you know, writing checks. Uh.
1: And the day came that I, nobody
0: in the family had anything to do with me, and my, my, uh, they came I had, well at this camp, one of the, the second time I heard about A was in this camp because the superintendent was a young man, had a young family, a young wife, and on Saturday afternoon they let me cut their grass at the house, and then invite me in for dinner that night, and by God I loved that, that was a good dinner. And one night he said to me, he said, Dave said, maybe your problem with drinking you know to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you're too young to be where you are. And I just thought, well, I'm too young to be an alcoholic. Hell, my brain had been about tickled then, but I was still, you know, too young to be an alcoholic. And I left uh, when I had served my time and had to go where I had to go, they carry you back to your hometown and put you out in the city limits. And I went back to see mother again. And I don't know why, but this time I went to the back door. I guess I was second class and, and my mother began to talk to me through a screen door and let me in and have something to eat and begin to talk to me. They got together again. Even my brother in came over this time. And I ain't going to get wound up on him. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I heard my mother say, that's my boy, and he stays here tonight whether you like it or not. That's my boy. And, and that's when I, you know, the word surprise wasn't even in my vocabulary, but I decided I just wouldn't drink anymore for her. I don't recommend this before A after A. I was able to do it for the next four months. One day it was suggested maybe I should go to work. <laughs> it's been a while and I didn't think I'd get a job teaching the state of North Carolina because of my, what had happened to me. And uh, through an agency in Richmond, I was able to go to two, three different states in the period of a week where I was interviewed for certain jobs. And uh, one afternoon we wound up in Roanoke, Virginia. I'm sick Thursday afternoon. It was, it was in August, early August or middle August. And a man began to talk to me, and, and he seemed interested to in me. I told him my background, and he said, well, give us some references. We've got to talk to some people. And, and I gave him some people to call. And he left, and my mother was with me, and, I, and he left the room to get on the telephone. And I told my mother, well, it's all over now. In about 20 or 30 minutes, he came back and sat down and said, I understand you had a problem with drinking at one time, but that you're cured now. Uh, yeah, I hadn't drank in a good while. He said, yes, sir, that's right. We want you to go to work. Now I had a new start in life in spite of where I'd been, a new start. Went back to my hometown, my mother financed the whole thing in my beginning and a restart in my profession. Had a place to stay when I got to Roanoke, had a job, I had clothes, I had a little bankroll, a fresh new start in life, and on the way I had to change budgets up in Richmond, and I decided I'd have one drink, but I bought two pints, you know how we are. Now. <laughs> And this is the only drunk that I really like to talk about, because that's the drunk that got me the Alcoholics Nossers. That's the drunk that got me here. I got back to Roanoke, instead of going to the place I was supposed to go, I checked into the hotel on the hill, and uh, lived it up a little, and, and uh, I was able to work five days. And then I the uh, Labor Day weekend came, I went in labor, I guess, I don't know, but uh, I couldn't stop drinking. The school official tried to help me. I lost a the job. They tried to help me financially, getting out of the hotel. And and uh, and my mother got in touch with me, midway that drunk, and gave me the greatest gift she's ever given me since the day I was born. That's when she kicked me out of her life, and I knew she meant it. And uh, she got on the telephone and talked to me and said, uh, You're no longer my son. Don't come home. No more. And I knew she meant it. And uh, a few days later, I was on the skids doing the best I could. And on Sunday morning, September 11th, 1957, I was in the back alley in downtown Roanoke, with the idea of taking a drink of liquor. And I don't know about you, but I remember when my moment of truth came. It seemed like to me the earth stopped moving, you could hear a falling leaf. Everything stopped. And I thought to myself, my God, I'm going to die from what I'm doing right here in this back alley. And I had enough self-respect, I didn't want to do that. And you know, when I, when I, when I came, in spite of where I'd been, when I came to the conclusion that drinking was killing me, I thought I was a leper. I thought I was the only man on God's green earth like me. And I cried out for some help. Maybe it was coincidence. This superintendent of city school that knew me had been looking for me for several days and they found me that morning. And he carried me to his home that afternoon? And he got in touch with a man that knew a man in an Alcoholics Anonymous. And that afternoon, uh, I was carried down to the old Easy Does It Club. Isn't <laughs> yeah, that a hell of a name, Easy Does It Club, <laughs> in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, on Franklin Avenue? I'd gotten to the point that uh, my hair hurt, my toenails hurt. I was tired of the high cost of low living. And by God, that's what it is. And I, and, and I was ready to do something. I didn't know what, but I didn't want any more of that. And I, I couldn't fly in oblivion anymore. The only vision I had was straight ahead, no provincial vision. Jake Leggett, yeah. And they carried about those steps. I wasn't drunk, I was weak. And got me in there, and there's some members there. And we say we don't look them over when you come in. By God, you look me over Because what I had was that paper bag. I had a paper bag and the clothes I had on, that paper had a, had a ear syringe, a razor and a toothbrush and ten pennies to my name when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, as they were discussing my entrance, I guess, into that hall, uh, an old gentleman was standing in the right hand corner, I called him Old Man John. And this man waved his fingers to him and I went over to him and uh, he put his arm around my shoulder and that old man rang my bell. He said, son, says, all you got to do is listen to these people and do what they tell you to do." And you never have to be alone again. That's all he told me. And unbeknownst to me, as I know it today, old man John was telling me the first few lines of chapter 5, where it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. That's what he was telling me. And old man John came to age when he was 76 years of age. He died at 82, six years of sobriety. And he rang my bell, because he told me in terms that I could understand, I didn't have to go out there anymore if I could do what you told me to do. And then uh, some members started talking to me, and I began to shake a little, and I said something about a drink. And they said, no, we don't do it that way. You get too bad, we're going to get you a doctor. Then I said something about some tablets, and I thought I started a revolution, really. (laughs) And I never forgot what they said, drink coffee, drink coffee. Now, what I'm about to say is no reflection of who made the coffee here this weekend. I want you to understand that right now. The no reflection of who made the coffee here this weekend. But let me tell you something. There's a hell of a lot of people in alcoholics and I making coffee that don't have any business doing it. And that was one of those days. It was that damn roasted stuff. It just hung. And to be honest, I thought you had to drink it to be a member. I drank it all afternoon. Got sick from it. And uh, and it, it came up rough. Now, I'm going to tell you something. But uh, that night occurred to me my first meeting. I don't know what went on. I remember sitting on my hands. I, I didn't know what it was all about, really. But the important thing is, when that meeting was over, I heard the magic words of Alcoholics Thomas, strangers, walked up to me and said, We love you, and we understand, and you're going to be all right. That's all they told me. Nobody asked me where I came from, what I had, if I had any insurance or anything. They just said, No, we love you, and we understand. You're going to be all right. And then after the meeting, uh, three men uh, proved to me I didn't have to be alone anymore. I'll tell you how I got sober. I got sober by three men who were members of Alcoholics Anonymous. got a room in the YMCA and stayed with me all night long, talking to me, talking to me about Alcoholics Anonymous, and telling me that I'd made an hour, I made two hours, I made so many hours, and the sun came up, and one of them said, Dave says, all we try to do is we just try to do it a day at a time, maybe you can make it today. First time I ever heard it, first time I ever heard it was that morning. And let me tell you something. For some reason or another, that morning when I heard that, I began to believe. I began to believe that I could make it that day. But for some strange reason, in the dark recesses of my mind, I knew one fact. I had to be around them to do it. I had to be around them to do it. And that's the way I feel about it this morning. i still got to be around you to do it. In spite of my sobriety. Uh, that morning, they carried me back down to that club. And I was introduced to the man who had become my first sponsor. I did not ask for him.
1: <laughs>
0: he asked me a lot of questions, uh, all of them negative answers, and the sum result was he said, Well, it seems to me that you're not doing so hot.
1: <laughs> and no, I wasn't
0: doing so hot. And he asked me some questions. I told him a few lies, and he said, No, you don't have to lie. Tell me the truth. And I began to tell him the truth, you know. And sure enough, uh, a little later on that day, uh, he got me a room in a boarding house where there were six of us, each one I was of us had a room, and I was put in a room with, uh, in a home with, uh, a boarding house with five other members of AA that were trying to do the same thing. I was, some of them had some variety and some of them didn't. And those six men gave me a lot. Uh, two of them are sober today, Charlie and myself. And I learned a lot from them. And things got better, and then my second wife, some of you knew her, Sue, came into my life, and just with another gift, and, uh, and that was a coincidence. And then it wasn't long before I began to, you know, get a little bit sober and know a few things, and, uh, well, I was star-graded sober is what it was, you know, I began to know a lot. <laughs> Stopped up those steps. I could quote them to you backwards, didn't know what they meant, but I could say them. And I began, you know, uh, and I was hanging around a bunch of people that were... What I call losers now. You know, t- take what you want and throw the rest away. And I damn near went away with them. And uh, I had, uh, well, I was about nine months sober, I guess, and uh, they finally let me talk one night. Uh, the steering committee had the meat on it, though.
1: <laughs>
0: and they turned me loose. And what had happened one of the fellows at the house got drunk, and the rest I brought them in and brought problem up in the back room. And, uh, and somehow or I just thought, well... I'll give a talk on how not to slip. Never heard of one, but I started one, by God. <laughs> I'd been talking about five minutes, and I heard somebody say, sit down. <laughs> and when you start raving so well, you don't hear them. And I kept on the gun, and, and by God, he said, sit down. And I made have did it in him, and then he came to the podium and grabbed me by the hand. <laughs> Took me down the aisle. And I sat with the old timers in the back, they call that Serenity Road. And, uh, and true enough, as I was walking down the aisle there, everybody's aisles were big, you know, this is something new. Uh, and my thoughts were, my thoughts were this. My God, I got too much power falling tonight, and He don't want me to overdo it. Yeah. All. <laughs> and,
1: and now you can begin to know what kind of shape I was in. Yeah. And uh, it was about
0: that time that, it wasn't long after that, it was about a year sober. Of them. They had a, 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 I called it inventory room. It was a concert room in the back of that hall. And by God, they'd just call you in there sometime and take your inventory. I mean, just sit down. The old times the bummers had survived, they I said, sit down, we want to take, take your inventory. I mean, what do you <laughs> Give you a chance to rebut. I mean, just say, sit down.
1: <laughs> and uh, one night they called
0: me in there talking about an employment problem. I, this was, I'd been sober, was, this was December. And I got sober in September, and uh, now I've often learned much more from people less education than I, and alcoholics, now, much. I don't know about you. The man who solve my employment problem, I had a third grade education, a sign named Red, and they would begin to talk about what I ought to do and so forth. But Red speaks up and says, Dave, it seems to me that if you studied engineering in college, that's what you ought to do me doing in life. Well, hell, nobody ever explained to me that way before. <laughs> uh, and so uh, through Red's suggestion, uh, I was went over to the Virginia Highway Department of Salem and was interviewed and told the man the truth. They told me he you know, said, Tell them the truth. And let me tell you something, when you tell them the whole damn truth, they sit there in complete amazement. <laughs> and, uh, no more lies. And I told them the truth, and, and the man says, My God says, son, if you're willing to help yourself, we're willing to help you too. And uh, when can you go to work? Well, <laughs> I was full of fear, I really was. And I said, Well it be you've got a lot of business tend to. <laughs>
1: We got the first of February and he said, Well you This is
0: the middle of December, summer. He said, Well, you come on back over the first of February and we're gonna put you to work. Scared to death. Went back out the car and Sue and read about that. How'd it go? bang, You get the job? Yeah, when you go to work. I told him what happened. They carried my ass right back and I went to work that happened. I went to work that happened. Uh, I guess that's what's called AA in action. I don't know. I'll never forget it now. And that's what I did. And, and, and a little bit later on, I, I, like I said, I, I began to know an awful lot. And I began to, uh, I wasn't working the steps. and I was running around with a bunch of losers. And, uh, and one night they called me in that inventory room and they meant business. And uh, the sum result of the conversation was they told me that unless I got a hold of the 12 steps and got honest with the steps that I was going to get drunk. And I was about a year sober. And, uh, and let me tell you something. That's a hell of a thing to tell a backbone of the group that is going to get drunk. And, <laughs> and I, I got mad about it. I resented it. And I wanted to, you know, I got ready to leave that room. And I was mad. I wanted to run out of there. And I, as I got to the door, my sponsor said, I want to ask you one question before you leave. And the question was this. And he says, when was the last time you thanked God for a day of sobriety? God, that made me madder. And I, and I left. I want to do something to him. I didn't want to take a drink, but I want to. Hmm. You know,
1: <laughs> you want to do something to him when
0: they talk to you like that. And uh, I got back to the boarding house and I uh, closed the door and uh, I sat down and wrote a written resignation to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> and. and uh, as I was involved in this composition, I, I began to hear his voice, and it got louder. And it was an echo, and it got louder and louder and louder. And finally, I was forced to my knees for the first time in my life and prayed to a God that I really didn't know too much about after a year in sobriety. God, to me at that time, was a question mark in the sky. Maybe yes, maybe no.
1: But I was able to
0: walk into a bathroom look at myself for the first time in my adult life, look in the mirror and know what I really was. That I was born in the world, someday I'd die and soon be forgotten. The only way I had to go was through pursue the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the next day I went back and rejoined AA. <laughs> and I become a member of the clique. If you don't know who the clique is, get that before the meeting starts and stay afterwards. Start doing those things. In uh, 59, uh, I moved to Raleigh because I had to move back to North Carolina to get a divorce so I could marry Sue. And my second sponsor took me over down there. He was one of the first 100 members of Alcoholics Anonymous out of New York, a man named Tom Burrell. And Tom and Bill were close friends. As a matter of fact, Tom placed, replaced Dr. Bob on the old Alcoholic Foundation as a trustee. And this man is the man that rammed the big book down my throat. You know, when I moved to Raleigh, I'd ask people questions and let them know how smart I was then. Tom would say, read the book, read the book. And I'd read that book. And he's the man that got mentioned in service work. I used to travel with him everywhere I went. And got to meet the old timers in the General Service office and so forth, and got me in in service work. And he gave me a great lesson by standing behind one of these podiums. I've been going; I'm about five years old. We've been going to a lot of these concerts, and retreats, and these deals, and watched these jokers stand up and talk, and got through, and everybody clapped like hell and hugged them and kissed them, and kind of, you know, kind of people to me. I'll be honest.
1: With you. <laughs> so one night I told Tom, i
0: I wanted to talk to him out and meet. They have a concert room with the old Hayes Barton group in Raleigh, too. And we went there, and he said, What's the problem? And he was one of these who always made you sit down, and he stood up and talked down at you. He what's What's the problem? <clears throat> I said, Tom, I think I'm a convention speaker. <laughs> now, let me tell you something. I can't repeat what he said, but <laughs> not from the podium. But he, 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 you're beginning to get the drift of all of it. But... I was moratorium One of my speaking for the next two and a, about two and a half years, right close to two years. He said, from now on, you don't tell, tell your story. You can go to discussion meeting and discuss, but you don't tell your story. And,
1: uh, well, that's what I did.
0: Two years, it was about two years, he called me one day and said, come over to the house, I want to talk to you. I said, what have I done now? <laughs> got over there, got in the den, I sat down and he stood up and he says, listen, you're going down to Columbia, South Carolina, to talk to the state commission. This is what you do. You do this, you do this, you do this. Before you go, there's something I want to tell you. They asked me to go first. I can't go, and you go going as a damn substitute, and don't you ever forget it as long as you live. Know and, and I'm just a damn substitute this morning, in case you're interested, uh, And that's the way I feel about it. I really do, uh, what I know about Alcoholics Now is I heard from somebody else from the book in my group, and uh, it was a great lesson. And then uh, I've had two sponsors since then that passed on all my sponsors except one, the fifth one. And he was rather reluctant, uh, horse. and he's a man I sponsored. He's got a little bit less right than me, so I've been surrounded with good sponsorship, which I think is a, part of the reason I'm here today, is because of good sponsorship. I've often said if the people I work with get half of what I got, they're going to make it. Because I got the whole load. I got the whole load to still get it. There might be somebody here this morning that began to wonder about this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. Will it work? Is it, is it, is it what it is? And they would say, well, if, maybe you're like I am. If you're new, you begin to wonder about this thing. Maybe you've got to get a hold of this thing called truth. I believe that the Cohen gut Guts, the whole program is based on one word, the truth. I heard a man say years ago, in some meeting somewhere. He said that when Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth in the body of man, he didn't say, I'm a truthful man. He said, I am the truth. I believe it's from this source and this root that we inherited the program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I've seen enough in my time not only to believe but to know that there is a power behind this universe that stands ready to help you and I if we're willing to help ourselves. In my early sobriety, I call it the Man of the State. This morning I called the God of my understanding, the God that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, the God that I found through you. Now, your love for me. I uh, have been sober for a while. I, uh, one of the greatest things that happened to me is my mother. Uh, it took nine and a half years for my mother to accept me back in her life. Now, uh, she couldn't understand how I could do it for a bunch of strangers and I couldn't do it for her. And she later became, it's another story, but she later became one of the greatest friends of alcoholics and I was ever had. And I thank God for the fact she lived to see me sober 32 years before she died. Uh, another thing that's happened, maybe they're coincidences, I don't know. Uh, Julie came into my life, I got a family now. Something i never experienced. Maybe it's a
1: coincidence, I don't know.
0: Maybe it's a coincidence we're here today and I see friends that I've been around for years. And we're here in celebration, more or less. Well, if it is a coincidence, I have to find a coincidence of act of God in the midst of time. The same God that has been doing for you and I, that which we could not do for ourselves. God, the Father of all mankind. I, in spite of this sobriety, I still know there are certain things I have to do. I have to continue to have a monumental desire to work at this program. You know, when I came to you in the beginning, I told you I was willing to go any length to get this program. Any length. And sometimes when that phone rings or four or five o'clock in the morning, some guy or gal wants to help. I began to think, well, I wonder if they take work, you know, wait after breakfast? <laughs> and them three men that night didn't dump me at the Y and say, we'll be back after breakfast. No, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. I have to work at it. The second thing I have to do is I have to go to meetings of alcoholics Anonymous. That's where it's at. That's why we survive among individual egos. It's the little people. And I look back at my sobriety and people that I've been connected with, people I work with, and, and it's the people I have to deal with, like Vernon and Gertrude. Uh, a couple that i sponsored, sponsored, uh, uh, they've had a lot of problems over the years. Uh, one of Gertrude now, over so for 16 years, and Vernon's going on three. Vernon should have more than I have. And Gertrude should have more, but they worked at it. But in the early sobriety, they'd been, uh, they a lost a driver's license and everything, and I used to make them, uh, you know, they'd have to call me to carry them to the meeting. And, uh, this was Christmas Eve one night, and I led the meeting, it was on the eighth step. And, uh, after the meeting was over, just a few people there, and we got in the car, I'm going down the road, carrying them home. The Eight step now. And, uh, Gertrude said, they'd been married 16 years at that time. And Gertrude says to Brennan, says, uh, Brennan, when you going to make some me? And Vernon says, Honey, you're not even on my list. And,
1: uh,
0: <laughs> it's people like that. It's people like that. And uh, I know for facts fact a member of my group here this weekend. And, and the reason I'm here is because they let me come. I represent my group. I think it's the best one in the world. I hope you think the same about yours. That's the way I feel about home groups. And then there's a story about old Henry. Some of you might identify with this I don't know Henry was a man It was an elderly man that came out of here in Raleigh and it was a used to, well he was a car salesman he sold me two cars so you know he's alright
1: yeah.
0: he used to travel with me but well, Henry had a little problem in the beginning staying sober and one, his, one, one week uh, on one of his drunks uh, one of the fellows that worked at the funeral home said let's carry Henry over there and put him in a coffin maybe that'll help him
1: <laughs> and uh, they
0: carried him over there and put him in a coffin and Henry woke up and the next morning, John was over there on the other side of the funeral home, Henry raised up, and had left it open and said, Where am I? Where am I? And John said, Henry, you're dead.
1: <laughs> and
0: Henry said, Well, how long have I been dead? And he said, You've been dead five days. And Henry said, Well, John, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm dead too. <laughs> Henry said, How long have you been dead? John said, I've been dead nine days. (laughs) Henry said, Well, you ought to know where we can find a drink. (laughs) People like that.
1: (laughs) The third thing I have to do is uh,
0: I have to work the program to the best of my ability, which is the 12 steps. I can save you some time, and that's it. There's a line in my book, in your book, that says, We're granted a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And I happen to know, as long as I've been doing that, my spiritual condition has much improved. And the fourth thing I have to do, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, some days I just have to hang on and do the best I can. They told me in the early beginning that nothing's so bad that it won't get better if you just hang If you just have to hang on. And somehow or another, I compare that with yesterday is my experience, and, and tomorrow is my hope. And, and today is going from one to the other and doing the best I can. And I really believe that as long as I walk this happy road of destiny with you hand in hand, that I will be allowed another day of sobriety as long as I do these things. There's a few lines in the book that I could sit up here after you introduced me and said these words and sat down, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, because it expresses my feeling about the whole deal, and it's a great fact, and it goes like this. This great experience that released me from the bondage of hatred and replaced it with love is just another affirmation of truth I know. I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous and everything
1: I need.